Bradley Manning, traitor or martyr? Today, Tuesday, April 9th, this is The World. Bradley Manning is facing a possible life sentence for leaking hundreds of thousands of government documents. This former State Department spokesperson says the government risks turning Manning into a martyr. He's a far more sympathetic figure internationally than he should be, and that sympathy is being exploited by our global competitors. And later, the late Margaret Thatcher as gay icon. She stood out, and I think, you know, that was quite inspirational for a lot of people. She was also very camp, you know, the pussy bows and the big hair and the big shoulder pads. Plus, the life and work of Vladimir Nabokov re-examined. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Bradley Manning could spend the rest of his life in jail. That's what's at stake in his military trial, which is expected to start in June. The Army private already faces 20 years in prison after pleading guilty to leaking hundreds of thousands of State Department documents to WikiLeaks. But prosecutors are still looking to convict him on a charge of aiding the enemy, which could result in a life sentence. Two years ago, P.J. Crowley resigned as State Department spokesman after criticizing the way Manning was being treated while in detention. Now Crowley's urging the government not to turn Manning into a martyr. He's a far more sympathetic figure internationally than he should be, and that sympathy is being exploited by our global competitors. My, my concern is that if we continue to pursue this charge of aiding the enemy, we risk turning Bradley Manning you know, from uh, a misguided soldier who committed a significant misjudgment, has harmed the national interest, and we risk turning him into a global martyr. How much damage do you think uh, the leaks actually caused to U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think on a country-by-country basis, there was some impact. But uh, thankfully, you know, through some hard work by those in government, uh, we have managed uh, the fallout of the uh, release of WikiLeaks cables. Uh, Most importantly, in terms of the ability of the United States uh, to do what it needs to do around the world, uh, thankfully, uh, we've retained that uh, that, potential. Details, though, of ongoing military and intelligence operations, uh, P.J. Crowley, were leaked by Bradley Manning. Individuals like informers were put at real risk. So that may not be a strategic danger to the U.S. I mean, it's still a very real uh, danger for those individuals affected. I mean, isn't that aiding the enemy? Well, you have to define who's the enemy in terms of... uh of the release of raw intelligence uh, that were part of the trove of documents that Manning gave to Julian Assange, um, yes, that that had an impact, uh, and that that you know is the basis of, you know for Bradley Manning's ongoing you know prosecution. Uh, the, the military justice system is about maintaining good order and discipline, and so Manning has pled guilty to a number of charges that potentially will put him in jail for 20 years. Now you have to evaluate pursuing the uh, larger charge of aiding the enemy against the strategic cost of keeping uh, Bradley Manning on a global stage for the foreseeable future. Justice has been served. 
the United States military has been able to reinforce to those in the ranks that if you violate your trust, uh, if you fail to protect classified information, you know, there will be consequences. P.J. Crowley, where, uh, where in the world have you seen uh, countries milking the, the Bradley Manning story and, and scoring PR points? Many countries are now uh, expanding their diplomatic reach. Uh, you've got Russia, China, other countries that have uh, created you know, global television networks are using and exploiting you know, social media to a much more significant extent. Uh, I was recently on uh, a network called RT, Russia Television. It's mm. Russia's equivalent of our Voice of America. Uh, and, and they are very much attuned in exploiting you know, not only the Bradley Manning case, but also the ongoing uh, situation at Guantanamo. Uh, you also have the issue of drones, where um, we, we, we are taking actions without necessarily understanding the external costs that come with those actions. We, we tend to ignore you know, these external costs, uh, and, and over time, the potential exists that they will erode you know, uh, international perception of the United States, and that will affect our, our, our global leadership. Finally, let me flip the first question I asked you earlier on its head. Do you believe the release of the State Department documents uh, by WikiLeaks has done any good? Um, I, I don't think it's done any good. I mean, the transparency, has it paid off at all? I mean, the, uh, the involuntary transparency, I must say. There, there are some global analysts who have looked through what, uh, what has come to light and, and their opinion of the United States has gone up. Um, uh, no, I, I think it, it, you know, this, this is a case of forced transparency. Uh, I, I do think that we as a government you know, should be more transparent. Uh, we have a good story to tell, but I, I, I'd certainly think that there, there's a better way to become more transparent than, uh, than sending hundreds of thousands of cables to a, a, an outlet like WikiLeaks. P.J. Crowley, the former Assistant Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, currently teaching at George Washington University. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Marco. We have a lot more on the Bradley Manning case at theworld.org. Our next story also has a military theme. It's about the families of Filipino veterans who fought for the U.S. during World War II. Decades later, these veterans moved to the U.S. and became American citizens. But believe it or not, some of their family members are still waiting for permission to reunite with them. And there's concern that an overhaul of the immigration system could make matters worse. From station WBEZ in Chicago, Odette Youssef has our story. To understand this story, you have to go back to the early 1940s. After bombing Pearl Harbor, the Japanese invaded the Philippines, which at that time belong to the U.S. We really fought for them. I can still remember the war. I was a teenager then. Remedios Cabignot is 86 now and lives in Chicago. But back then, her husband, Servilliano, fought alongside the U.S. in the Philippines. The couple came to the U.S. in the early 90s when Congress allowed Filipino vets to become naturalized citizens. Cabignot says they wanted to live in the country she still calls the land of honey. And since one of their sons, Al, was already here, she didn't think it would take long for her other two sons and a daughter to join them. We petitioned them right away, 93. I have the dates. <laughs> I have the dates and they were approved. <laughs> Al Cabignot, the son that was here, said they weighed things carefully. They decided his father should be the sponsor on those petitions. Because we thought being U.S. veteran, it would be faster. It would facilitate the processing. And we were so happy because they got approved right away. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we didn't know we have to wait 
20, 17 years for the visa availability. That's right. In fact, they're still waiting. Their petitions are stuck in a backlog for family-sponsored visa applications. Mexicans, Chinese, Indians, and Filipinos, they all face long lines for these visas. And Filipinos can wait the longest because they're the second-largest immigrant group in the U.S., next to Mexicans. Filipinos have this waiting time, substantial number of years, compared to others. Jerry Clarito heads the Alliance of Filipinos for Immigrant Rights and Empowerment in Chicago. He says that Filipinos apply for a disproportionate number of family visas. But each year, the U.S. limits the number of visas for adult or married children and siblings. So the lines grow longer. In March, the U.S. only got around to Filipino petitions that were filed in July of 1989. Clarito says this is inexcusable because we're talking about families of U.S. veterans. If we recognize the services of the military people, we do recognize that the family support is number one to make the veteran or military person sane. Clarito says Filipino veterans have gone through the trauma of war. Then they endured the difficulties of acclimating to a new country. He says they need their families to help them through these experiences. Clarito's group is lobbying Congress to remember this now. They were in the front line of the battle. Now they are behind, waiting. Clarito wants Congress to consider a standalone bill to fix this, separate from comprehensive immigration reform so it doesn't get lost. Something may be in the works. Lawmakers from Hawaii have introduced the Filipino Veterans Family Reunification Act. It would exempt children of Filipino veterans from the visa line. As for Remedios Cabignot, she's seen her children a few times these last 23 years. They visited twice on tourist visas, and she last went to the Philippines 15 years ago. But now, she's too old to travel, and her husband died two years ago. And then, she got a letter in the mail. We were all devastated when they told us that our, our prayers and petitions died with my husband. That's right. Cabignot's husband sponsored the petitions. When he died, the petitions were revoked. Still, Cabignot and her son Al hope Congress will remember them. In the meantime, they email their family in the Philippines, always updating them on the status of the petitions. For The World, I'm Odette Youssef in Chicago. Americans wanting to petition for permission to travel to Cuba know there are strict rules for that. The U.S. embargo says you can't just go there as a simple tourist. You need a special Treasury Department license, and those are usually reserved for journalists or academics. That's why some were surprised to see Jay-Z and Beyonce looking a lot like tourists in Havana recently. The entertainment power couple celebrated their fifth anniversary during a four-day stay in Cuba. Their trip was immediately criticized by Cuban-American politicians in this country, some of whom are demanding an explanation from the Obama administration. Reuters Miami bureau chief David Adams is on the story. He says from what he's been able to find out, Jay-Z and Beyonce traveled to Cuba under a so-called people-to-people license. It actually began under the Clinton administration. It was nixed under the Bush administration. Republican members of Congress, particularly those here in South Florida, didn't like the program. And then uh, in the Obama administration revived it in early 2011. And, and it's been going gangbusters ever since then. 
Well, Ileana Rosleitinen and Marco Rubio and others seem to have cast this trip as a conspiracy, but it appears not, as you explained. So under person-to-person contact, how can one actually go to Cuba if you don't fall under any of the Treasury Department exemptions? Walk us through the process. Well, it is complicated, and I think that's why there's been some confusion uh, about this trip, and obviously partly because the organizers of the trip and uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z themselves um, haven't been terribly forthcoming with information about the trip. But our understanding is that uh, they did indeed apply to the Treasury Department uh, for a license, and, and it was approved. Where the confusion kind of stems from is that neither the U.S. government nor the Cuban government knew in advance that Beyonce and Jay-Z would be traveling to Cuba, because the license process does not require you to submit names of the participants on the trip. As long as the trip organizers have a license to travel and conduct these people-to-people visits to Cuba, They don't actually need to tell the Treasury Department who are the people traveling on any particular trip. Well, let's say you wanted to go to Cuba kind of on a real bare bones trip and you didn't want to do one of those educational exchanges, just person to person contact. How many tourists are we talking about who do this person to person contact each year? Um, Well, there are thousands of Americans now going every year. I was talking to just um, one company this morning. um, It's a nonprofit, actually, called Inside Cuba. They told me that they have about 160 tours going annually. They're based out of uh, New York State, and they have a wide variety of tours. The simplest one, the most straightforward one, is their four-day long weekend in Havana, which is a quick immersion in, in Cuban culture. You can do a longer, undiscovered Cuba tour, which is a 12-day, 11-night trip throughout the island, or you can do a, a more specific five days jazz in Havana. Mm. I know of another trip that's going this week, which is a, a small few-day excursion, or excursion perhaps the wrong word, a trip looking at Irish routes in Cuba. There's a huge variety of different types of trips that are being organized. They're not terribly cheap because uh, there is a lot of paperwork involved. And uh, Cuba, surprisingly, uh, is is not an inexpensive place to visit. Now, uh, whether it's a person-to-person trip or a cultural exchange, uh, once you're approved by the Treasury Department, how do you actually physically travel to Havana? If you are approved by the Treasury Department, you can travel direct. There are charter companies operating not just out of Miami, but are now out of more and more American cities that offer direct flights to Havana and to other cities in Cuba, actually. David Adams, the bureau chief of Reuters in Miami, thanks so much. My pleasure. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Vladimir Nabokov was one of the great writers of the 20th century. He was also highly opinionated, as you can hear in this clip from a BBC documentary. I loathe such things as jazz. I don't belong to any club or group. I especially loathe vulgar movies. Fake thinkers, puffed-up poets, Freud, Marx, frauds, and sharks. Mm, Doesn't like a lot. A new biography explores how history helps shape Nabokov's life and his strong opinions. Andrea Pitzer is the author of the just-published The Secret History of Vladimir Nabokov. He was born into the last decades of Russian imperial history. So his father had grown up at court under the czar. His grandfather had been the minister of justice under two of the last three czars. And they ended up fleeing after the revolution 
with literally Bolshevik machine gun fire shooting at the wake of the boat as they pull out. And then they ended up settling in Berlin, and Nabokov's father was assassinated almost by accident as part of a political assassination aimed at someone else. And then he married a Jewish woman in Berlin just a few years before Hitler came to power. And so, again, he was a refugee from these sort of political forces that were turning the world around throughout much of his century. Mm. He was in France, and he escaped France just weeks before Paris fell to the German army. So he was this sort of Houdini of history, escaping again and again. You know, the great thing about your book is that it's not a straightforward biography of Nabokov, but you relate him to history, to other writers, um, sometimes focusing more on those writers than Nabokov himself. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, most notably. I mean, you start and end the book with this kind of discussion of the two writers. How did they weave around each other? and What's important about those two men in particular? Well, I wanted to juxtapose them because in Solzhenitsyn, we have this man who never made any bones about what he was up to. He was trying to chronicle the horrors of his century and what had happened to his country and the tragedy of all this, uh, and sometimes was faulted for his style in doing so, but was always admired for his bravery, whereas Nabokov had almost an opposite perception in the world, someone who focused on anything but all the politics he had lived through, someone who was very much art for art's sake and the linguistic acrobatics and the sort of structural pyrotechnics and was very much about style. And diving into all this history, it seemed to me that he had actually folded it again and again and again, many of the same concerns that Solzhenitsyn had, the camps, uh, the atrocities, uh, the intolerance, uh, into his stories, and it had been missed. So in some ways, the two men, I thought, were much more alike than, than either had sort of ever been given credit for. They both had interesting relationships to their country, what was the Soviet Union, and the United States. Talk about that and where they kind of diverged. I mean, Solzhenitsyn, uh, his relationship with the Soviet Union changed several times. Solzhenitsyn first had been a very ardent admirer of the revolution and a supporter of all things Soviet and wanted to grow up to be a great Soviet writer. Once he was imprisoned in the gulag, he had a view uh, that was very, very different and slowly came to sort of take back everything that he had felt before. And it was very traumatic. Whereas Nabokov loathed the Soviet Union even before it was officially the Soviet Union, never respected the idea that the revolution had been a good thing. His Russia had been destroyed by the time that he had left in 1919. And so he came through Germany to France to America and, in fact, uh, adored America and admired America and loved many things about it. At the same time, he was such a keen observer of social situations and interactions that he couldn't help seeing some of the hypocrisies that were running rampant in America at the time, the Jim Crow South and the anti-Semitism that also sort of hung around a little more genteely, perhaps, uh, certainly, mm. in fact, than it did in Europe, but uh, it was still there. I mean, as you point out, his wife, Vera, was Jewish, and Nabokov experiences suffering of Jews through her experiences. But his focus on the horrors of the Holocaust kind of followed him his entire life. Where did that empathy for the plight of the Jews come from? Well, it certainly came from having it become this personal thing when he married Vera and had a Jewish son himself in Nazi Germany. But it predated that. His father had been very active in standing up for the civil rights of Jews and easing restrictions that had been placed on them under the czars. And in fact, it was his father's activity on the behalf of Russian Jewry 
that helped secure Nabokov a berth on a ship that had been chartered to evacuate Jewish refugees from France during World War II. It was the memory of what his father had done. So it was really a very long legacy for him. You had uh, numerous adventures uh, on the way to getting this book uh, published. In your introduction to the book, you try to visit uh, Cresty Prison, where Nabokov's father was held under Tsar Nicholas uh, II. Um, d- describe that scene for us. That was at the very beginning of my St. Petersburg trip, and I was with a guide, and his English was quite good, and we were walking along, and uh, I said I wanted to visit Cresty Prison, and there was a museum there that I wanted to see because Nabokov's father had been there. So he seemed to think that was strange, but we started heading that way, and I realized as we're walking that he's telling me that it's still a prison. It's an operational prison, and most people wouldn't really want to go there. (laughs) It's a prison, Mm. and we wandered into this building, and it the interior looked almost as if it had been bombed out, which is entirely possible. It might still be from World War II. But we couldn't find anybody. And we just smelled food cooking. And it was this eerie silence. And we're wandering around. And I kept thinking of this Nabokov short story about a foreign visitor who ends up in life-threatening danger because of a trip to a museum that goes mm. terribly wrong. And then we came out of the building and we turned a slightly different way. And there was a sign for visitors. But we realized that these people standing here were visitors for the prison. It was a really telling moment. This history is still very much a living thing. It's still a prison. I'm interested to know what critics have been saying to you uh, about this book, because so many people see Nabokov strictly, as you write, art for art's sake. Leave the backstory out. What do you think about that? And what, what have you heard? It can be tricky because I think everybody, critics, scholars, general readers, have their own Nabokov. It's like your own personal Jesus. They have their own Nabokov. (laughs) And some have felt that looking this closely at history is somehow to tie these stories down or to strip them of their magic in some way. And I would agree that if you just reduced his works to nothing but a series of chronological illusions, that would definitely be flattening the novels out. But I think to ignore this history that's embedded in the books is really to miss half the story. Andrea, thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. Andrea Pitzer is the author of The Secret History of Vladimir Nabokov. See some of the historical documents Pitzer uncovered, including Nabokov's 1940 immigration card. The author also reads a passage from her book. That's all at theworld.org. I'm going to guess you didn't stay up late last night reading one of Nabokov's books. Maybe instead you watched the NCAA basketball championship game. That's what I did anyway. And one thing that caught my eye was a flag being waved by someone in the crowd. It was a flag of an African country. That's thanks to Gorgi Jang, the six foot eleven center for the University of Louisville Cardinals. You might have seen him showing off his hook shot to help Louisville to the title over Michigan. Anyway, Jang is from a country in West Africa. He was born in the city of Kebemer. That's north of the nation's capital, which is Dakar. Gorgi means the old one in Jang's native Wolof, the main language spoken here, in addition to French. So name the country, and we'll hear more about Louisville Center later in the program. News headlines are coming up in one minute. This is The World from PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the principal of a Palestinian school says educating girls is like saving them from drowning. Every woman gets educated is a profit. And once you have this woman loses her education, it's a loss for the whole nation, for the whole society. 
PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. If you want to jumpstart a car, you need jumper cables. Well, it's early days still in Secretary of State John Kerry's attempt to jumpstart the Mideast peace talks. But you can't say that he's out there looking for jumper cables anyway. Today, Kerry wrapped up three days of meetings with Israeli and Palestinian officials. Any Mideast peace plan would have to tackle the perennial sticking point of East Jerusalem, which the Palestinians want to serve as their capital. The world's Matthew Bell recently went to one of the Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem to hear what some young Palestinians have to say about their future. There's a shortage of classrooms in this Palestinian section of East Jerusalem called Shafat. So when the Dar al-Huda High School for Girls opened up three years ago, it didn't take long for its 250 slots to fill up, and there's a long list of students waiting to get in. If these 10th graders want to succeed beyond high school, Hebrew language skills are probably going to be important. When I ask the students who wants to go to university after graduation, every single one of them raises her hand. A 15-year-old named Iman says she wants to go to college and study engineering. She wants to be a breadwinner even after she gets married and has kids. But if she does graduate and start college, Iman will be in the minority. Last year, around 40% of East Jerusalem 12th graders dropped out of school. Even here, at a semi-private school that emphasizes the importance of higher education, Principal Huda Abu Zaid says most of last year's graduates didn't make it to college. Out of 70 students last year, only 10 attended universities. And the others, uh, they got married or they stayed at home or they went to work even. Abu Zaid says helping Palestinian youth, especially girls, to get a proper education is like rescuing them from drowning. Every woman gets educated is a profit. And once you have this woman loses her education, it's a loss for the whole nation, for the whole society. Abu Zaid says some parents are conservative. They'd rather the girls get married young and start having children. In parts of East Jerusalem, poverty is another problem. We are three daughters and two sons in the house. The house where 16-year-old Jamila Shahada lives is about a 15-minute walk from the high school. The ramshackle cinder block structure with sheets of tin for a roof is home to Jamila, her siblings, and their parents. Jamila's father is a truck driver who's been out of work for several months. Even by East Jerusalem standards, the family is poor. And that's probably a big reason why Jamila takes school so seriously. Jamila is already worried about how the family can come up with the money for college. I would like to get an education in order to be able to teach. I feel sad about the prospects of not studying. Back at the high school, I ask one student how she feels about President Obama and his vision of a future Palestinian state. How would Jerusalem be different then? It would be better. Israeli people are going to go out, all of them. 
Uh, kick Israeli people out? Yeah, I want to kick them out because they don't want to live in peace with us. So they w- I want them to go out and we're going to make it someday. That kind of sentiment is no surprise to Rami Nasrallah of the International Peace and Cooperation Center. He's from East Jerusalem himself. And Nasrallah says people have lost hope in the peace process that began in the early 1990s. It didn't improve in the last 20 years. So if this is going to improve, there's no doubt that people will support it and they will defend it. But there's nothing to support, there's nothing to defend today. That, that's why people will go to the extreme. And the easy way is to completely to deny the existence of the other side. And this is, we are doing this on, on, on both sides. According to U.S. policy, the Palestinian areas of East Jerusalem are expected to hold tight and wait for a political solution with Israel, and eventually these neighborhoods could become the capital of the future state of Palestine. But in the meantime, the residents here are stuck. Nasrallah says they're suffering for it, and it's time for people like Barack Obama and John Kerry to focus on solving practical problems like education, housing, and the economy. And the political, one day it will come, but uh, there's no assurance. So it's better to proceed with the, uh, with the package of the daily life needs and uh, rights of the Palestinians just to avoid the, you know, an escalation of the conflict. Secretary of State John Kerry today talked about the, quote, festering absence of peace. Rami Nasrallah says Kerry could get a real sense of what that looks like on the ground, if he comes and visits some of the Palestinian areas of East Jerusalem. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell. Another part of the planet that could use a peace plan, the Korean Peninsula. North Korea is making noise again, and I don't mean to sound flip. These are serious-sounding threats. Today, Pyongyang warned the two Koreas are inching closer to nuclear war, and other countries are responding in a serious way. But many in South Korea are used to North Korea's warnings, and they're going about their lives. It's a little harder for the 5,000 or so who live on Bengyan Island in the Yellow Sea. North Korea has singled out their home as a target. Jason Struther took the ferry there and talked to some islanders. Almost all of the north coast of Bengyan Island is lined with cement walls and fences topped with concertina wire. There are only a few ports where fishing boats can head out to sea, but not many are going out these days. I met Lee Hwan's son on a wharf. He was fixing holes in a giant orange fishing net. Normally, I'd drive my boat about five minutes out to sea and start fishing, he says. I wouldn't even go out that far now because of North Korea's threats. Bengyang is just about 10 minutes across the water from a North Korean military base. That's where leader Kim Jong-un gave a command to strike the island if war breaks out. Kanyang has made threats like this many times before, but people on the island are taking it seriously. If bombs were to fall, residents would hole up in dozens of underground shelters across the island. They're stocked with dried food and generators that provide power for five days. Kim Jin-gook points out a map on a bunker wall that shows just how close Bengyang is to North Korea. Kim heads the island's civil defense force. He says because the possibility of being attacked here is much higher, people don't just brush off Pyongyang's threats like other South Koreans do. Islanders are worried. And that includes him. He says he's not afraid of all-out war, just a surprise attack 
like the one North Korea launched in 2010 on neighboring Yongpyong. Four South Koreans died there. Proximity aside, whenever Pyongyang threatens the South, the island's income takes a hit. Passenger ferries from Incheon are almost empty these days. Tourism is one of Pyongyang's biggest industries, but almost everyone here complains that North Korea's rhetoric is keeping visitors away. Park Dong-sik owns the Moonhwa Hotel. He says the media coverage of the threats is making guests cancel their reservations all the way until June. It's worse now than any time he can remember. Park says he's not scared. He trusts the few thousand South Korean soldiers stationed on Pyongyang will protect residents if anything happens. He adds he'll never leave the island. But some want their loved ones to get off the island just in case. And fisherman Lee Hwan Sun says he's thinking about leaving Baekgyang altogether. My children have been telling me and my wife that we should move in with them on the mainland, he says. And with all the noise from North Korea, I've been thinking about it. But if we all leave, what will happen to the island? Lee says for now, he'll just keep working on his nets so he can take his fishing boat back out to sea when things die down. For the world, I'm Jason Struther, Bengyang Island, South Korea. You've been hearing the praise and recollections, not to mention the criticism of the late Margaret Thatcher, who died yesterday at age 87. To give you a sense of just how divided Britain is over the death of the former prime minister, listen to this. Just last night, six British police officers were injured in public rallies organized to celebrate her death. For an even more polarized and raw view of Thatcher, go back to the 1980s. This period was really difficult, especially if you were young and gay in Britain. Thatcher's conservative government brought in legislation which specifically outlawed the promotion of homosexuality in schools. It meant that teachers counseling gay teenagers could lose their jobs. Damien Barr was a school student at the time, part of that generation. He grew up gay in a working-class Scottish community where Thatcher's policies dominated everyday life. His forthcoming memoir, Maggie and Me, revisits that era and the woman who dominated. Um, Damien, thanks for coming on the program. I'm curious to know, first of all, what was your attitude toward Thatcher? I hated her for Section 28. I mean, I went and to try and talk... Section 28? Tell us about that. Section 28 is a piece of legislation which was supposed to pro- prohibit the promotion of the teaching of homosexuality in schools. Uh, what I mentioned earlier. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, obviously not very successful in my case, but, you know, that piece of legislation meant that my teachers, when I went to speak to them, could not talk to me. They actually said, we can't talk to you and this is why. So I wasn't given any comfort or any advice by people who wanted to support me. So that was a cruel and unnecessary piece of legislation. But, and a lot of people don't know this, Margaret Thatcher voted in 1967 to implement the decriminalisation of homosexuality. So on the one hand, she did that. And on the other hand, she brought in this horrible Clause 28. So that's a contradiction. But there is a message from her which is to do with individuality, being your own person. Um, You know, when she famously said there's no such thing as society, I didn't really like the society that I was living in. I found it quite oppressive and quite scary. I wanted to get away and become my own person. And that's the message that I got from her. You know, you can be your own man. Now, she may not approve of the man that I am, but she certainly said that I could go and make myself. And that's what I've done. And your mother and father, did they like that or did they hate her? <laughs> My dad was a steelworker in Ravenscraig, which was the biggest steelworks in Europe. Thatcher closed the steelworks. She took away my dad's job. 
She took away the jobs of our community. She was hated by both my parents. She was hated by every single person that I knew. And they were all thrilled at the news that she was dead. And I can understand why they feel that way. Because you know what? She did do those things. She did tear the heart out of our community. She made us from being working class to in some senses almost being underclass. I mean, given that Thatcher didn't really have a gay rights agenda, to say the least, given that your family hated her, explain the evolution then as Margaret Thatcher becoming a key figure in your own growth as a person. I mean, some might even say she's a gay icon. Well, a lot of people say she's a gay icon. You know, she was different. She stood out. And I think, you know, that was quite inspirational for a lot of people. She was also very camp. You know, the pussy bows and the big hair and the big shoulder pads. She was sort of like dynasty politics for us in the UK. I think Meryl Streep gets that quite good in the film, actually. (laughs) Um, You know, she's kind of hilarious. But I think, really, it's the message about individuality and sort of being your own person that I think that, that we can take from it. But for me, I really felt, shaped by her more almost than than my parents you know and so, and very often reacting against her so you've got Cher, Barbara Streisand, and now Margaret Thatcher, the part of the triumvirate, is that it? <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine us all going clubbing together? Now, that would be a Wild. night. But you know that Maggie Thatcher would drive, so that's fine. She'd be the designated driver. Damien Barr, he's the author of the forthcoming memoir, Maggie and Me. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Damien. You're welcome. Thank you. I doubt any cartoons of Thatcher going clubbing with Cher and Barbara have been produced yet, but the world's cartoon editor Carol Hills has been seeing scores of Thatcher cartoons since the news of her death was announced yesterday. Carol, Thatcher evokes a strong reaction, as we know. I assume you're seeing that in the cartoons you're seeing. Really strong reaction. And put that with the fact that most cartoonists tend to be liberal to the left, and you've got some pretty tough tough images. Uh, Steve Bell, a really noted British cartoonist, his cartoon today, it shows Margaret Thatcher standing in her own grave pit. The grave diggers are standing nearby, and she barks at them, why is this pit still open? And of course, it's a reference to the coal miners and the, the disastrous strike and her privatizing the industry, which really just destroyed the livelihood of so many miners, mostly in northern England. Right. Now, there's a number of images also about Maggie Thatcher trying to enter heaven. One of them, she arrives in heaven and she immediately wants to privatize it. In another, she has to go through security to get to heaven and the buzzer goes off because she's, of course, the Iron Lady. And a more positive heaven image is God is saying, you can help me get rid of all the evil empires. So it's, it's a range, but I would say pretty much negative. So those are tough ones. What about other parts of the world? Well, it varies. You get to continental Europe, you get a variety. You get the Western Europe, which is anti-Thatcher, and you get the Eastern Europe, which sees Thatcher as saving them from the Soviet Union and liberating them. Now, the place I was very keen on getting some reaction was South Africa. And they're pretty tough. And it goes back to Maggie Thatcher refusing to support sanctions and really hanging in with the view that the ANC and Nelson Mandela were terrorists. And so Zapiro, he's one of my favorite South African cartoonists, he does the Rust in Peace image today, showing Maggie Thatcher open casket, and she is made of iron, and it's Rust in Peace. Those are the cartoons Carol could describe. There are others that can't be mentioned because they're too offensive, and you can see all the cartoons Carol is curating in a slideshow at theworld.org. Carol, thanks as always. Thanks, Marco. You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you were watching last night as Louisville beat Michigan for the NCAA Basketball Championship, you might have noticed the flag being waved by someone in the crowd. It was the flag of Senegal, and that's the answer to our geo-quiz today. Now, I'm a college hoops fan, and I've never seen the Senegalese flag at a March Madness championship. Well, the flag was there because of Louisville's 6'11 center, Gorgie Jang, who is, you guessed it, from Senegal. Tommy Tomlinson writes for Sports on Earth. Louisville fans, Tommy, are celebrating today all the way to West Africa, this uh, 82-76 victory over Michigan. Let's focus in on Louisville's Gorgie Jang, though. Uh, CBS indicated his family back in Senegal was watching on a special satellite feed. They must have been really excited. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I think they've only got to see him play once. They came to watch him play against Kentucky, which is Louisville's big rival, And Gorgie played well, so I'm sure they are excited about that and excited about the championship. Yeah, and Gorgie had some great moves last night, even conjuring up Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at one point with a skyhook. What else does he have in his bag of tricks? Really good shot blocker, uh, really good at altering shots in the middle and rebounding. But he has developed over his three years at Louisville a really nice sort of soft 15-foot jumper that he made in two or three key moments last night. And also, as you said, kind of broke out the baby Kareem Skyhook. Right. But he wasn't always this good. I mean, apparently he got to Louisville and wasn't even clear on some of the rules of the game, right? Right. When he first got to Louisville, he didn't know that offensive fouls counted against your foul total (laughs) and that sort of thing. He had played in Senegal, you know, as a kid and, and grew obviously tall enough to be somebody that basketball coaches would be interested in. Some American high schools got interested in him. He played at a prep school in West Virginia Louisville coaches went to look at another player, saw Gorgie, and decided that they wanted to sign him. And he's been kind of a project. When he got there, he was 180-something pounds, and now he's he's 245 and much more imposing. He is a junior. Do you think he's NBA-bound sooner rather than later? I think it's sooner. When Louisville did their senior day uh, back a month ago or so, uh, Rick Pitino, the coach, had Gorgie speak at the senior day because the assumption was, he wasn't going to be back. Oh, wow. There's been a history of kind of Senegalese big men in the NBA. The general feeling is that he'll be drafted in the NBA somewhere in the maybe middle of the late first round. NBA teams can always use big guys who can play defense and block shots, and, and he can do that. Well, today, for sure, Gorgie Jang and his fellow Cardinals at Louisville are celebrating, and they deserve it. Tommy Tomlinson with Sports on Earth, thanks for speaking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. On the island of Bali in Indonesia, a long way from Senegal, a traditional woodcarver has turned his skills into an unlikely international business. He's making high-end guitars that sell all over the world. Erwin Loy has the story. Sounds so warm. So, uh... Wayan Tuge stands in the middle of a small air-conditioned storage room. Rows of ornately carved acoustic guitars hang from the walls around him. Until a few years ago, this traditional Balinese woodcarver had never even seen a guitar. He had to Google blues legend Robert Johnson just to figure out what Western guitar music even sounded like. Because uh, many people say the ancestor of the blues is Robert Johnson. Like his father before him, Tugues made a living crafting wooden sculptures with intricate Balinese motifs. But then a few years ago, a stranger came to his workshop with an odd request. And then he came here with... Uh, the guitar, and then uh, he asked me to build guitar like that. Tugues took the guitar apart and tried to copy it, but what he made was unplayable. I tried to build, but 
Maybe I can show you this, this a block of wood. <laughs> he matched it perfectly and carved a goddess on it and, and really some beautiful carvings, but the guitar itself weighed something like 15 kilos. It was a, a, out of a big chunk of wood. That's Montreal businessman Danny Fonfeder. In 2005, he was vacationing in Bali, desperately trying to replace a guitar he'd left in a Hong Kong hotel room. He saw the shops of traditional wood carvers that lined the streets here and thought, why not? And then the light bulb went out of my head and I saw these beautiful carvings on the street. And I just wondered, you know, why the Balinese can't make guitars. It wasn't quite so simple, of course. The delicate science of crafting a musical instrument was foreign to them both. Fonfeder eventually hired an American luthier, an expert in making stringed instruments, to work with Tugues in Bali. Almost two years later, they produced their first quality instruments and sold it under the name Blueberry Guitars. The guitars now sell for thousands of dollars each. A group of men sits on the ground at Tugues' outdoor workshop. One man sands down a piece of wood. Another uses a chisel to etch a pattern into the top of a guitar. It's a painstaking process. All the work is done by hand. It takes at least three months to finish a basic guitar. Tugues, who's also a spiritual leader in the community, jokingly says that the process is almost divine. Because uh, normally in Bali, we not just work. Yeah. Before he works, he says, he invites the gods to rest in his body and mind. The god will work. <laughs> Tugues may have some help from above, but when it comes to testing out the finished product, he leaves that to an assistant. Tugues builds guitars, but he's never learned how to play one. With Blueberry, Tugues has built and sold more than 1,100 guitars around the world. They're well known among musicians here in Indonesia. Even the country's president owns one. And the guitars are drawing attention on the other side of the globe. Rick Monroe is a country musician based in Nashville. Aw, hear that sustain. Monroe has been playing Blueberry guitars for the past four years. It's got a warmth. It's got um, a depth. It's got, you know, just all the tones are there. Monroe says he hasn't had the time to visit Tugues in Bali, but he chats with him online. He sends video clips of his latest songs with him playing the guitar Tugues made. Because of Facebook, you know, the fact that you actually get to meet the guy online that made the guitars is really cool. And so now the fact that he and I have a relationship and get to write back and forth and he gets to see everything that I do with the guitar is really cool. Back in Bali, Tugues sits outside his house, demonstrating his more traditional musical tastes. It's a religious chant. Tugues says he doesn't know much about Western country music, but for him, music transcends borders, like a guitar made in Indonesia, sold out of Canada, and played in Nashville and beyond. For The World, I'm Erwin Loy in Bali, Indonesia. Don't hide your face from the morning sun I love you just the same With no makeup on it Maybe simple but it's true Can't take my eyes off of you
And we go out today with Rick Monroe on his blueberry guitar and the song Just the Same. You can check out a slideshow of Tugas's handcrafted guitars on our website. That's theworld.org. And you should take the time. They are beautiful. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International